Hi, I'm Jenny Whitehead, and this is my podcast. With different guests, we will be discussing relationships, families, and how to grow and strengthen them. Hi, and welcome to my new podcast. Um, This week, we're going to be talking about equal partners and what that looks like and what that means. Um, We'll be kind of looking at different areas of that, Um, what it means to be an equal partner to both the husband and the wife and different tools you can use to be partners, um, like using a family or spousal counsel, um, and what it means to preside and what that means to you if you are a wife or what it can mean if you're a husband. So we'll be talking to a few different people this week. Um, Our guests are going to be Ashley. She is my sister, um, and I have watched her and her family use counseling um, and counseling together as a family to kind of guide some of their choices and to, um, help them in their, um, spousal relationship. And also we'll be talking to my cousin, Melissa, who looking at her and her spouse, um, and seeing how they work together, they seem to be a very equal partnership in my eyes. And then we will be, um, talking to my husband, Jeff, and talking about what he thinks an equal partnership is and some of the different areas where we think we're strong and where we think maybe we could use some work in being equal partners and using counsel. Um, so we will get started with some of those. Okay. All right. So today I will be talking to um, a few different people about equal partnerships and what that means to them. So I'll be talking with um, my cousin Melissa today. Um, about some of her views and what she feels about that. And I will turn the time over to her to kind of introduce herself. Melissa. Hey. So I'm Melissa Elder. I've been married for close to 14 years. Um, I've only had one partner. I've ever only had one partner. And so um, my experience is only based on my time with Brad. (laughs) And then I have two kids. Um, One of them is eight years old and the other one is close to two. So there's quite a gap, but yeah, we live in uh, Daybreak, Utah. We live in an area where it is very religious and also very instagram E. <laughs> so everyone's trying to just find out who they are here, I feel like, but um, it's a great area. I feel like it's, we get a lot of transplants out here, which is nice and and it's good. It's good to throw some mix into the the vanilla lifestyle out in Utah. Perfect. All right. So our topic today is equal partners, like I said. And so I know I've known you and Brad together for 14 years, and I've known you your whole life. And when I look at you guys, I can see from the outside what looks like a good partnership. And so I, um, I guess I kind of wanted to know, what does that, what is being an equal partner? equal partner with Brad mean to you? What does it look like to you? Well, first of all, thank you. I feel like it is a lie. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we're trying like everyone else, but, um, I feel like that. So I, when I thought about this question, I thought about what really, what does equal partners mean to me and do me and Brad feel like we're equal partners. And I feel like that we entered the marriage with both of a sense that there's really no soulmate. And so 
we never really thought that it's made or that it's that um, it's just going to be this happily ever after. In fact, I feel like we both kind of entered the marriage with like low expectations and and more of like a, we hopefully we can just get through this and then not screw up our lives. And it's been working out really great. But I think for us, um, it me so equal partners to us or to me means there's no tally marks. I feel like there's never a, an ongoing score of who's doing more and who's doing less. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. I feel like equal partners to put it in a picture. I feel like it's never him sitting on the couch and me in the kitchen or me reading a book and him scrubbing the floors. I feel like we're always kind of doing the same thing that needs doing. And, um, and I feel like it's always a treat when one of the spouses says, Oh no, you just take it easy. I've got this. And, Mm -hmm. but that's never expected. And I like that. I like that those things are never expected. And then, um, I also think what makes a, a, an equal partnership is that, um, I feel like that there's really no competition. I feel like that there's no race to the finish line. Mm-hmm. I feel like there is no finish line in marriage really ever. Yeah. And I feel like that it's never felt like I'm competing with him. Cause I think if, I think that that actually happens quite a bit in the home and I really don't know how, anyone would survive in that scenario when the world is already so competitive and then you in your home you feel like you're competing with your spouse and so I feel like that has I feel like I've been very grateful that that in my home there's no race Mm -hmm. but I don't know I think that kind of sums up for me I guess anyways what equal partners mean and I think basic kindness I never want to be someone who is talks one way in my home. And then the second I open the door to someone on my porch, I am a completely different person. I feel like if I turned around in a corner and bumped Brad in the shoulder on accident, I would treat him the exact same as if that happened on the street. And, and I think that that has also helped that we just try to be civil, just civil, I guess. Which is huge because there's, you can see it in couples where they're, like mean to each other sometimes. I know it is. It is surprising, and I and I didn't really realize that that it was very different for some couples until I was like five years married, where I was like, "This is a whole different." I've never even seen the side, but I get, I get that. Obviously, you're like you're yourself, mm-hmm. and some of those that part of yourself is darker than when you're on the streets. But I feel like yeah. the majority of the time, we say please and thank you as if we are with strangers or friends and we ask how they're doing. And I don't know, I just basic, like the basic civility stuff, not going out of your way to make cinnamon rolls for them in bed. I feel like it's just basic kindness that has outlasted, I think. Yeah. No, that's true. You, you hit on some interesting things that I had never thought of. Like, when I think of equal, equal partners, for some reason, I always go to, like, who's in charge? Is Jeff in charge or am I in charge? Yeah. I like how yours was more of, like, we don't keep score and we don't, um, it's not a control thing and we work together. So I like that. 
Thanks. Well, I, yeah, I remember hearing one of my friends talk, I remember they were in an argument and she was like, but I did this. And he was like, well, I did this though. And she was like, well, I did that. I do that every day. And, and it, it kind of felt like it was a score of tallies. And, mm. and I remember that night being like, Brad, let's not keep, let's not keep tallies. That just seems so annoying. And, mm-hmm. and like tiring to yeah. keep score. Not for sure. Okay. So then my next question would be, so have you ever felt in your relationship and you don't have to share either if it's personal that you weren't equal partners or that one of you kind of just took the reins and ran with it and the other one was left behind? It could either be you running out in front or him running out in front or, and then how you kind of rectified it. Yeah. Okay. So I have two things that instantly came to mind. One of them, I don't know if it's appropriate to share on here. I I can always cut it out if you want. Okay. I was going to say, I don't know. I don't know like how, I don't know how honest you want me to be, but I would love to be. You can be as honest as you want, as long as you don't care that some people might hear it. No. Yeah. That's great. Okay. So the first one I'll do the G rated answer. And I feel like, I feel like a part of me, every time I want to spend money, a part of me deep inside thinks it's not your money because I'm not making it. Yeah. And that's the only time where I feel like I have to actually talk myself out of that role like that. Because I think that, I think that we are a generation of feminists and we can do it we can, we can do it. We, it's okay. We don't need all the help in the world. And, yeah. and, and so I think every time I text Brad, Hey, are you okay? If I blow money on this, whatever, mm-hmm. I always feel like a little bit of like a wah, wah, wah. Like you have to ask for permission. Yeah. And then what's always very reassuring is when he's like, yeah, totally. You don't need to ask me. And then I'm like, okay. And then I am back into like, Oh, this is, that was stupid that I, think so much about money but um that was the only time where I felt like our roles were like me asking a daddy daddy can I buy some candy you know and then he gives me a quarter but that's the only I feel like that's the majority and so the other one that's a little bit more pg-13 was at the beginning of our marriage where I got the impression that that sex was very much a man's sport Mm -hmm. and that I felt like, you know, you, it's, it's for the man, it's for the man. And so learning that it wasn't was extremely liberating and it made me feel so feminine and so in control and, and very equal to him where again, I think just, and I think that's maybe generational. I don't know. I don't know where I got those misinterpretations where, where sex is a man's game and that it's all for him and that it's, we are really just kind of a, a pawn. Mm-hmm. But, um, but unlearning that was wonderful. So I feel like for maybe about the first year where in, in our religion, where you try to save yourself, you know, for mm-hmm. spouse, if you, if you were able and if you can, but, um, but I felt like that, the first year it was learning. It was unlearning that where I, where I, I felt equal to him in that aspect as well. Okay. Interesting. Thank you for both those answers. Um, so then next, um, 
so then we'll go to the kind of religious side of it. You gave some super interesting, it's always nice to talk to other people because I get different scenarios that I think, oh, that makes perfect sense. And oh, yeah, I've had that too, but I didn't think about it in the same context. Yeah. Um, so then when we move into the religious aspect of it, again, our religion is, it, it often comes across as very um, man-centered and man-focused and it's even yeah. called it the family is the patriarchal order and yeah um so how do you and this is where i struggle and i don't know if you struggle too of letting brad preside but being equal partners yeah so okay so that was a really interesting question because i feel like that is more of a language based rather than an actual belief system yeah. where i feel like the language speaks louder than the actions, I guess I should say. So in our home, I've never once thought of Brad presiding. I, and I don't think he's ever thought of, of me wearing the pants. You know, like I think that that language is not a part of our everyday language. I've heard, I mean, clearly you hear it in our religion. And I think that that's okay. I, I mean, I, it doesn't affect me the way that I think it affects others because that language has not seeped into our home. If Brad was someone that, if we were to get an argument and he threw that in the argument, I think it would be a whole different dynamic. But the fact that he doesn't really consider himself as the authoritative figure or presiding officer in our home, then I feel like that, yeah, I think that would be a whole different realm of issues. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that being said, I thought of things that I, that by subconscious, like by my subconscious, I think of him as, I don't even want, I don't even want to say Thor to figure, but maybe someone that, that I, that is needed mm -hmm. in the home. Because I feel like there's things that, again, in a feminist world where we can clearly do, we can, we can work and get nannies like we can provide for ourselves we can do most of the things that husbands can do but there's a few things that that i lumped into the that he offers me that no one else possibly could than my husband and i do feel like he is way more emotionally stable and i think that men again this is not a blanket statement for all men but i think the majority of men are keep their emotions pretty intact and can see maybe the bigger picture a little bit in a more simple form where I think women are just a spider's web full of emotions and feelings and things that we want to accomplish and do and, and feel. So I feel like that when I feel out of control, I look to him for the control mm -hmm. and I look for him for the stability and the, and the calmness. Cause I think he brings that to the home when I can't. So I guess to some degree, that's where I would like lump him into where yeah. he resides. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. And I, I, that's a good question because I don't know what that would look like in any other situation. I, I mean, I can imagine that that talk is not taken lightly in people's homes and, or, or too seriously in people's homes where the, I guess it, the man is the boss and looks to be the boss. I don't even know if I'm, and some men probably wouldn't even want that role. I don't know. No, I, 
I feel like it's a it's such a big word and it makes it seem like a almost like a power play move. Yeah, yeah. I and that say what, what's your definition of presiding? Would you say in in just for this question? This question, okay. So I guess I guess very often in my mind when I think of presiding, I think of like. Well, I'm the man, and I don't know if you've heard of the man. Like, who runs the home? The priest did the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, anyway, that's not a G-rated thing either, but (laughs) where, like, they come in and, like... Yeah, yeah. I'm the man, and I get the final say. And then in all of the readings and studies from this week, it talks about how we're equal partners and we're co, and presiding just means it's not supposed to be in charge. It's supposed to be just kind of like looking out for the family or maybe the head of the home? The head of, well, the head of the home in the sense that where the the man and wife should both be heads of the home, but somebody kind of has to take, like, if you're both presidents, one of you still kind of has to take control of a meeting, even though you're both in charge. Like you both can't. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, um... Yeah, that's interesting. And and maybe to go deeper into like the priesthood aspect, um, it, it maybe could be more of Brad's personality where he doesn't take ownership of the priesthood, where we all know it's there if needed, but there's never ever been any kind of talk or language of, well, well I have the priesthood or I have the priesthood so I can do this, or it's always the balls in my my court if I want a blessing or if I mm. but so it is yeah I guess it, it just depends on the home and, and the personalities of of the presidents yeah. it is that is kind of that's kind of a loaded question and and very interesting because it is a language it's definitely a language in our religion yeah maybe maybe it's one that maybe needs to just stop being it needs to just like a word that maybe just doesn't need to be said anymore well, and I think the word itself is maybe okay, but it's maybe people's interpretations of it, like where some men will yeah. think, well, I'm the presiding authority. Well, that's fine. When the stake president comes to my ward, he's the presiding authority, but the bishop is still the yeah. one So I think it maybe it's just perspective too, like the woman's yeah. and the man's perspective. So, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting. I'll have to maybe think about that a little bit more. Yeah. Anyway, so those are my questions. Thanks so much, Melissa, for being willing to talk to us today and for your deep thoughts. They were awesome. Oh, so deep. (laughs) No, thank you so much for asking me. I, it really was the highest compliment and honor to even be thought of in that category. Wow. Thank you. I think you guys are great. So yeah. (laughs) All right, so now I have um, my sister, Ashley, talking to us for a little bit. Um, she is my younger sister, but my taller sister. And I will turn the time over to her, and she will just do a little intro. Thanks, Jen. Um, my name is Ashley. I live in Montana. I'm very far away from my sister, and that's hard. Um, I am married to my husband, Timothy. We've been married for 16 years. We have three children. Uh, Emma is 15, Kaylee is 13, and Eli is 10. And I'm really excited to 
get to talk today about my family. Perfect. Thanks. Okay. So um, this week we're kind of talking about what it means to be equal partners and what it means to have um, a counsel within your family. And that's not meaning, let me counsel you, family. That's meaning kind of how you talk and make decisions and arrive at a consensus together. So, Ash, my family, I'm, we're not good at it in my family. I'm not sure if you know this about me, Ash. I'm a titch bossy. Um, what? Oh, surprise. I'm kind of bossy, and I usually get what I want. And my husband is very loving and easygoing. And if I say, I want to do this, he'll say, okay. So I kind of always just steamroll over lots of people, actually. And so I'm trying to be better. And so I'm interested to hear what and how other people, like I know the brother and house steps that they kind of recommend. And I'm always interested to see how other people do it differently or better than I do. So, Ash, let me ask you, what does what does kind of a family council look like to you or even like a spousal, spousal marital council look like for you? Yeah, so I don't know that we have like a formal council. We don't call the children into the living room and say, it's time to counsel together. But um, we do try to include our kids in, in as many decisions as we possibly can. And, um, you know, there are times where it's just not appropriate to include your kids in some decisions, but letting them know maybe that this is a decision that we're we're making and these are the reasons why or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, in the last several months, we have actually made some really large decisions as a family. And um, so I'll just kind of talk about how we included our kids in that. Um, the first one, our kids had been, you know, begging us since they could talk for a dog. Um, and we've always had a little dog um, a Shih Tzu or, or a Bichon Shih Tzu cross. And they were fabulous, but they're not big dogs that will play fetch and that will wrestle and that will go running or hiking. Mm -hmm. And um, so as we were talking about, about this desire that these, that our kids had, um, you know, we sat down and, and we told them that it was something we would consider, but they needed to understand the responsibility and, and the things that went along with bringing a dog into your family. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that wasn't a decision that in my mind required prayer or fasting or, you know, it, it's a big decision, but, um, and maybe someone would disagree with me. It's not something we prayed about. Um, but we did give our kids time to think about it and understand what would be required of them and, um, and we went ahead and got the dog and, and so far it's great. And sometimes the kids forget their responsibilities and that's normal. I think, um, we also had been, um, looking for a new home and Timothy and I had been talking about remodeling and renovations and additions on our current, on our, on our old home. And, um, and started thinking about, you know, how, how the price of remodel adds up and 
um, sometimes it's better to to just move. And so then we started looking at, at homes. And we had, the two of us had been talking together about it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had gone and looked at a couple of properties before we ever let the kids know that that was something we were considering. And when it got to be something serious, where we realized it would make more financial sense for us to move than to stay where we were and remodel, um, we did do more of a formal council. So, you know, we called the kids together and we said, here's what we're thinking. And um, we asked them their thoughts and their feelings and, and, you know, how they would feel if we found a home in a different school district. How would they feel if we found a home where we would be moving wards and, and attending church with new people? Mm-hmm. Um, we let them come with us to look at some potential properties. Um, and, and we discussed them, you know, the pros and cons, what we liked, what we didn't like. And, and we listened to everybody's thoughts and feelings. When we found a home that we really liked and was in our budget. Um, it, it was it was uh, more of a serious discussion because uh, it would mean a change of schools, um, and 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 then just leaving friends in the neighborhood and stuff. Um, so we listened to our kids' opinions and their feelings on it, and then. And then it becomes, I think, uh, a spousal council after that, or however you want to describe that. So we, um, you know, then Timothy and I take it to a private discussion, and we each talk about our feelings and our thoughts. And then, as with most of our major decisions that we make, we counsel with the Lord. So it's really us and the Lord, and, and I don't feel like we can make any major decisions really well without His guidance. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so I, I just think when we, when we counsel together, it usually is, um, at least for Timothy and I, when it's just the two of us, um, you know, we'll, we'll each express our opinion and our feelings and maybe why we feel that way. And then, um, and then we both agree to, to pray about it when it's a big decision. And then we come back together and counsel again with what our thoughts and feelings were in our personal prayers and as we pray together about it. Um, so I really don't feel like our counsels maybe aren't what they're supposed to be. But when we have big decisions, um, we just wait. I can't do it without without the Lord. Mm-hmm. And do you find when you follow the, those kinds of steps, do you usually come to an easy consensus with him or is there usually like sometimes okay we might need to table this for a little bit or do you like for a big decision I'm assuming you usually come to a consensus together yeah for for a really big decision we we're usually on the same page and even for smaller things um and and usually most of our big decisions most of our decisions in general that we consult each other with are financial Uh Right. Do we spend money on this? Do we spend money on that? Um, And there are times where we disagree about things. And there are times where one of us feels really strongly. Usually we each feel very strongly and it's about different. We're in different ends. And so 
um, I think it's just, uh, we, I'm not sure how to say this. So we, we have arguments with each other, but we've never really had like an outright fight where we're shouting and upset. Um, you know, we disagree about things as, as people do. And, yes. and, and you're right. Unhealthy. Right. Yes. Yeah. We, we're not robots. Um, so we do, we disagree about things and, um, and as we, I, I think if, if one of us becomes emotional about it, you know, whether that's we're upset or angry, frustrated, then we do usually just, you know, we'll come back to it. It's never anything that needs to be decided right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think giving each other time to think and, and, you know, I think it's important to, to feel what you're feeling and to recognize where that's coming from, right? Like, what is my reasoning for wanting this or thinking this or feeling this? And, and sometimes it's super random. Right. And so then as you take a step back and then come back with kind of a fresh mind and fresh eyes and probably after praying, you're usually able to either find a new solution, I guess, together, or you're able to reach some kind of agreement or consensus on matters. Right. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, giving each other time to process and to think things through is important, but yes, and you have to come back to the discussion. And, um, I think it's important to provide like a safe space for each other, you know, where you can express your opinion and and I'm not going to attack you for your opinion and, um, and then discuss it together. I like lists. I often have a pros and con list in my head or on paper and, um, yeah, I don't know, just working through things. I like to work through things logically, but emotions play a role in a lot of things too. They do. They really do. Okay, perfect. Thank you for that. Um, and if you have a few extra minutes, would you be willing to tell me what what it means to be an equal partner in a marriage to you? What does that look like to you? Yeah. Um, so I think that this, my opinion of equal partnership has changed over the years. Like I said, we've been married for 16 years. And... Um, I have always felt very supported by my husband. Um, I've I've been a stay-at-home mom. I was a stay-at-home mom for the for 13 years of our marriage, um, and that's that was my goal, and that's what we both agreed was important, and we both wanted that. And so Timothy worked really hard. Um, for us to be able to do that financially, it required sacrifices from our family, but it was really important to us. And, um, and so we worked together to make that goal possible for our family. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, Timothy had some health challenges a couple of years ago and I was really worried that he wasn't going to be able to work anymore and I would need to be the sole breadwinner. Mm-hmm. And that was not a pretty prospect with my 
qualifications and I hadn't worked in 13 years. And um, anyway, so we um, had actually sold a, a rental property that we'd had for too long. And um, we were talking about how to reinvest this money. And Timothy said we, we needed to reinvest it in me and in my education. And so I went back to school. Um, and so with going to school and then as a result of that, uh, working full time, the, the partnership has changed, um, where I still need the emotional support that, that I needed as a stay at home mom. But, um, you know, when I was at home and Timothy was working, um, I took on a lot more of the, the household responsibilities, um, which worked out really well for us. And, and that was, that was great, but, um, I'm just not able to do what I was able to do previously. And so, um, you know, without me saying anything, Timothy recognized that and knew that that was going to be an issue and, and, and really stepped up and, and took more on. Mm-hmm. And, um, the kids as well have taken a lot more on, um, with their chores and, and, taking care of each other and things like that. Um, but I think that recognizing what your spouse needs, whether it's physical or emotional, um, is really important. And obviously we can't be mind readers, but I think when you know someone as well as I hope people would know their spouse, you can recognize what they need and when they need it. And, uh, and just providing that support when you can and, and um, yeah, whether it's emotional or like I said, help around the house or whatever, it's it's important. So yeah, Melissa kind of mentioned, so oh, like she knew some people who kept tallies. Well, I did this, well, I did this, well, I did this. She's like, I think it comes down to just helping and being kind and like almost going back to like the basic common courtesies that you would give anyone else Right. To your spouse. Yeah. Which seems so simple, but I think it's so often overlooked. Oh, perfect. Okay. Thank you so much for talking to us for a little bit and for your opinions and how you guys um, counsel and what that looks like to you. And, and yeah, maybe we'll talk to you again sometime. Okay. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Okay, earlier I had said I was going to um, interview a few people, and my husband was one of them, because I thought it would be important to have a man's opinion on equal partnership as well. But this episode is already getting quite long, so I will save my husband's wisdom for another episode. Um, But I will again thank um, Melissa and Ashley for talking to us this week and um, for their different insights. I found it so interesting um, after I had talked to Melissa and stopped recording, we kind of talked a little bit more, and she asked some of my perspectives on things, which um, I haven't really shared too much of what I think. But as we were talking and talking about presiding in equal partnerships, I'm, and after uh, studying this week on um, presiding and what equality looks like in a marriage, I've, I've come to the conclusion that I, and like I've said, I'm a little bit of a steamroller on bossy, and I need to give my husband more ta- chances to preside and not take charge, but um, 
let let him do his job and to um, let him be the man without sounding too sexist. Um, I find a lot of the times uh, I stay, I'm a stay at home mom most of the time going to school, obviously I'm working one day a week, but I'm at home. And so I always just kind of took the home jobs, like for the parenting. If there was a parent teacher conference, I went, if there was an IPP, we have two special needs kids and an IPP program is just a special program in their school. And so if there was an IPP meeting, I just went to it. And if there was this, I just did it. And um, not too long ago, my husband, Jeff said, well, can, can I help with some of this? What's going on? He kind of knew nothing. And so I thought I was helping, but I steamrollered him right out of the position of parent almost where I just kind of did everything. And so um, I'm kind of recognizing that I need to let him parent and preside in our home to he is my equal partner as well, not just the dude who brings me money. I need, to, I, I need to be a better partner to him as well. And so, yeah, I thought that was interesting this week. And I will try to be better. And again, thanks to those who talked to me this week. And we will see you next time. Um, another one is the severity of the consequence. So I'm, I'm assuming that's kind of like the. The punishment the offender has and then whether there's an apology from the offender and then the relational factor is um, who the offender is to the victim how the proximity to the victim um, if there's like a hierarchy or a status between the victim and the offender um, and different pressures of on the um, offender to apologize and of the victim to accept the apology and then um, the victim's personality and so I can see I'm usually I'm usually fairly easy to forgive I think I hope I don't know I guess you could answer that but I, can. I think I think we're both a little bit different I think you're quicker to forgive and I have a harder time with it I think we both have those significant differences in personality um, but I think that's something that um, at least in the last uh, several years, I've been I've been trying to be better at, especially as I see you making uh, or the way then how quick you are to forgive and and to see things. It's certainly allowed me to to be a more forgiving person. But certainly, I think that personality piece is is so important. It's true, but I also think too, um, like for me anyway. Like anytime we have had a situation, you are so quick to be repentant of it and to try not to do it again. Like I can see that you make an honest effort. So for me, it's easier to forgive because I can see, I can see that you want to make the change or you're, you're truly sorry where I can, I can, I can see the other side too, where if somebody's doing the same thing over and over and over again to you and asking for forgiveness. I know we're supposed to forgive 70 times seven, but it would be, it would be way harder. Like the hundredth time after somebody comes to you and says, oh, I did it again. I'm sorry for you to be like, oh my gosh, buddy, come on. So yeah, anyway. Um, and again, yeah, even just who the person is to you when it's your spouse, I think some things can hurt and be deep, but it's also, I think it's also important to, 
try and forgive as quickly as you can because that person is your your support and your partner. I think it depends a lot on the relationship you have with your spouse. I know some people don't have the greatest relationship with their spouse and yeah. or they've been hurt so many times without like what you said, it happens over and over and over again that someone's not repentant or I think that can be it can be a lot more challenging to um to forgive, but certainly yeah, if you've got a close relationship with someone and that hopefully is your spouse and, and then um being quick to forgive only only helps things and hopefully being quick to to be repentant too mm-hmm. i think you know if someone at work did something to me I, it'd be i'd care a lot less than if someone i'm emotionally attached to like you mm-hmm. it just means that much that much more it has a whole different emotional attachment that's true well i even know um when we were first married, one of some advice that my mom gave me was like, if you and I were ever having a problem or a fight or a disagreement, she didn't want to know about it because she didn't want to look at you differently. Like we'll make up and I'll still always love you, but she doesn't have the same connection to you that I do, but she has that connection with me. And so, you know, like, I don't fully know where I was going with this, but, um, I think, well, I guess that's even like the, um, proximity to the victim where like, kind of like you were saying, somebody at work does something to offend you, whatever, you can get over that fairly quickly. Most of the time, I guess, depending on what it is, but when it's, yeah. And I think even with proximity too, it would depend on what it was like somebody shoving you at work, it might take you off. But if I accidentally did it, it might be no big thing. But if I did something very hurtful it could be more hurtful than if I don't know proximity all it all works together I guess I just talked in a circle and said nothing <laughs> but that's okay <laughs> um and then kind of going back to what you said earlier Jeff about the f- forgiving being for the forgiver um Elder Scott says that forgiveness is the sure path to peace and healing so do you think you can get to peace without having forgiveness in your life um, short answer, no, I don't think you can. <laughs> and I, I think, um, well, and that's just based on my own experiences when I don't forgive when, I mean, when I choose to let go and forgive and, and move forward, um, there's just a whole different, there's just that whole different feeling that comes with mm-hmm. it. It just feels like a burden being lifted and um, it doesn't change what, you know, it doesn't take away what happened. It doesn't make what happened better. Like I said before, but it, it changes you. It changes me when that, when that happens. Um, Yeah. Thanks. Okay. So, and I agree with you that it's the, that you need that forgiveness to have that peace. Um, I can't find it. I was just looking for it. But in the textbook, it also talks about um, if that has an effect on like the empowerment of the victim. A lot of times we think, well, if you, if a victim forgives somebody, they're kind of, and you talked about this before too, giving up their power or giving up, they were wronged and they need to, somebody needs to make amends or somebody needs to pay for that. So, So it talked a lot about 
want, but I cannot find what I wanted to read. Hmm. Shoot. Okay. I think our natural instinct is to make, to want the other person to suffer like we're suffering. Mm -hmm. That automatic natural man is to, um, well, they hurt me, so I think they should suffer the same way that I do. Mm -hmm. And, um, that never really leads to, <laughs> to that peace because nothing's really going to make up for, you know, exactly, okay, once this happens, then it's all even. It's, mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's never that peace. There's always going to be that resentment there. There's always going to be that anger there. And I think one of the, the things that I appreciate about our faith is knowing that, um, someone already has paid, yeah, paid that consequence. And so I don't need to, to worry about that. I don't need to, to question or be a judge or, or anything that it's all, it's all been worked out. It's all been paid for. Um, I can choose to move myself forward, um, and trusting in Heavenly Father and the atonement and, and the gospel. Perfect. Thank you. And then, then to kind of the flip side of that, where it's been paid for and we need to forgive and move on. Um, I'm just going to read something here from the textbook. It says it is natural to be angry and even vindictive when one has been wronged. Sometimes victims are uncomfortable with these emotions and try to skip straight to reconciliation without adequately acknowledging the wrong or allowing time for meaningful repentance and forgiveness to take place. But forgiveness demands recognition of wrongful behavior. Um, Murphy, one of the authors of the book, warned of this superficial forgiveness or cheap grace, explaining that hasty forgiveness can undermine self-respect respect for the moral order, respect for the wrongdoer, and even respect for forgiveness. Okay. I found that super interesting. Um, because, like I had kind of mentioned, I'm usually quite quick to forgive. And now I'm wondering if that's always because I truly mean it or if that's just what I'm supposed to do. Um, so, yeah, the term... I thought the term cheap grace was very... Interesting. Um, yeah, I guess when it's superficial, it's just the surface and it's easy to say, I forgive you. But then that resentment and anger keeps building and building. I think it's a way to avoid sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, for sure. Well, to truly repent and to truly forgive, you got it. There's some deep feelings and a deep process that has to happen. And not everybody likes to feel feels. I know I don't like to feel feels very often. <laughs> Those kind of feels. Any other thoughts on that? Okay. Um, and then it talks a little bit about uh, apology. Um, and so this is kind of more of the offender side or the repentant person side and what a proper apology is. And so it kind of lists four things. It says an accurate acknowledgement of the offense, appropriate expression of regret, a suitable offer of repayment and a pledge to reform. And to me, that sounds almost like identical to the repentance process where when you repent, you need to um, acknowledge the offense, whether with the Lord or if you need to seek um, somebody like your bishop, um, expression of regret, um, repayment. 
what are, what are the church words? I can't remember all of a sudden. <laughs> Oh, restitution, restitution as much as you can. Oh, thank you. Another form is like a true change of heart. Anyway, any tips on an apology? Well, I think that's an important one you just mentioned, a change of heart, because I think a lot of times we just, we just change the behavior and and that's all we need to do. But um, I think repentance or apology is more than just reforming a behavior. It's a truly a true change of kind of our whole way of being towards that offense and to the person that we offended. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think you can't fully change a behavior. Well, you can, you can change anything for a little bit, but unless your heart's truly changed, those behaviors will slide back him. And the other thing too is, um, I, I think oftentimes oftentimes we think, well, I'll, maybe I'll forgive them if they apologize, if they recognize what they did. And, and, um, I think we forgive regardless. Um, and then the other piece too is it's not for us to demand, um, forgiveness. So, well, I apologize. So you have to forgive me. I think it goes back to what you said earlier, that it's a process and it's, there's difficult feelings and there has to be acknowledgement and um and i think in couples um that i've worked with professionally um a lot of times there's this idea that you just quickly apologize and then everything's everything's fine Mm -hmm. and that's really not not a path to a healthy kind of happy relationship um there has to be that acknowledgement and you know an expression of an apology doesn't actually necessarily mean saying, you know, the first words out of your mouth are, I'm sorry. It's, you know, listening and under, trying to understand and exploring and, and then changing the behavior and working through it, um, which is not easy to do. Oh, that's true. At least for me. <laughs> yeah, no, it is hard to do. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah. Um, so yeah, kind of circling back to that in the textbook, it said offenders, offenders are not dependent upon forgiveness of the victim and victims are not dependent upon repentance of the offender. Um, and again, we kind of touched on that already. Um, but again, it's showing the intrapersonal situation where repentance is for you, the individual that's repenting and forgiveness is again for you and I think that's it's again harder to see when you're in a marriage a close relationship like I think they can be very important and play off each other um but at the end of the day me forgiving you is for me although it might make you feel better and you repenting well it might help me to forgive you is also for you Um, oh, go ahead. Can I just make another comment on something yeah. that I think is important? I was when I was thinking about this just before we started the podcast. I was thinking about forgiveness, and we all we often hear the the saying "forgive and forget." Mm-hmm. And um, I think I don't think that's fair. That you know we act as if forgetting is like a, a choice you make to forget. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think that's really how it works. However, I think as we forgive 
um, it's a natural process that we begin to forget. And maybe it doesn't completely leave our mind, but it's no longer taking up the space that it once did. And over time, it no longer becomes what it was. So I think we do forget as we forgive, um, but it's, it's not in the way that we think of, you know, just forget it. Because we can't forget things that happen. Mm -hmm. We can't erase things that have happened. I don't know if that makes sense. But. No, I think it does. And I think, I don't know if the better term would be, I've, I've never really liked forgive and forget because there's some things, there's some things you just can't forget. Like you need to have boundaries sometimes in some situations. Like if you were sexually abused, you can forgive somebody and you can move on from it, but you'll have to always have a certain set of boundaries with that person. You can't forget that. And so I almost like the word dwell instead. Like you can forgive and just not dwell on it anymore. I like that. Um, because, yeah, there's some things you'll always remember, but it doesn't have to be painful and it doesn't have to be something that you're constantly dredging up all the time. Um, like, I like the analogy of, like, an open wound. Like, you need to clean that wound, but then you need to let it heal. And if you just keep, if you keep trying to clean it and picking at it and picking at it, it will never heal. Um... And so then when we talk about forgiveness, the side part is repentance. And I think in our church, we talk a lot about repentance. And I think we all kind of know the gist of it. But I just wanted to touch on guilt and shame because a lot of times um, in the repentance process, well, you need sometimes you need a little bit of guilt to get motivated in the repentance process, but it can very quickly turn into shame. And I know um, in your profession, Jeff, that's something that you're quite passionate about. Mm -hmm. If you, do you have anything, a quick something to say on that? Yeah, I think we often use those interchangeably and um, they are vastly different. Um, one being a helpful, um, I, I believe kind of God-given reaction to acting against our values or acting against kind of what we believe to be right or what we hoped um, in guilt, um, which can motivate change and help us to, to see things differently. Whereas a lot of times the guilt, as we dwell on it and as we just kind of ruminate on it, um, it can very quickly spiral into shame or toxic shame, mm -hmm. which is kind of moving into a realm of, you know, I'm just a terrible, bad, faulty human being, um, versus guilt where I've, I, I've done something wrong or I've done something, um, that uh, isn't in accordance with my values. Mm -hmm. um, so it's guilt, I did a bad thing, shame, I am a bad person. Yeah, totally. Okay. And that's that's toxic and that's no, we can't really go anywhere with that because it's really internalizing, it's about our nature, it's kind of in, internalizing who we are and we can't, when, if we just take that on and I'm just a bad person, there's not a whole lot we can do about that. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if we recognize that maybe I've done something that isn't, isn't, isn't good, um, it helps us see that we can do something about it. There's something we mm -hmm. can do to change it. Well, the idea of shame is so overwhelming. How do you change your whole persona of being a bad person? Or if it's something bad you did, well, behavior, that's way easier to change than a whole personality defect. Mm -hmm. That's why I really, I really, I, I often cringe and I know people probably disagree with me on this, but I often cringe when I hear people talk about, oh, he's a bad person or they're a bad person or, um, they're just, uh, 
I my personal belief is that we're not there's not bad people there's people who who do things that aren't right mm-hmm. um, and there's a whole host of reasons why they act that it doesn't make them good it doesn't make those things good or right um, but um, I think if we label people as bad people um, it just kind of ex- perpetuates the shame culture mm-hmm. well then if you look at it's so much harder to forgive somebody too. Like if you look at the shame versus guilt, even from the forgiveness aspect, if a spouse did something you don't like, you can forgive that thing. But if your spouse did something because they're a bad person, that's way tougher to get over and forgive. And remembering that people make mistakes and people aren't always the bad person. I think it goes on both, both sides. Of the repentance and the forgiveness. Yeah, I like that. I think a lot of times we do label people as being defined by the things they um, they might have done or the mistakes they might have made, whereas people are so much more than that. Um, yeah, or even defining them by, you know, different labels we have as, you know... Um, I don't know, different diagnoses and things like that, that can, someone can experience doesn't necessarily mean that's what they are, who they are. Oh yeah. You can think of anything like, are you a diabetic or are you a person that has diabetes? Are you an alcoholic or do you some, are you somebody that has an alcohol problem? Like it's a very, it really personifies the, the issue or problem for sure. And I think with some of those things, I think it's important to acknowledge those facts. If you, you know, to, to recognize, you know, if you can relate to being an alcoholic or an addict, but being able to separate that from that's your whole person. That's, that's who you are. Mm-hmm. Mm, thank you. And I think that happens a lot in, um, relationships, um, marriages where, you know, one of the partners, um, maybe there's addiction or depression or other things involved. And then the spouse kind of labels their spouse as that's just, that's who they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, or that's who they've always been. And I've been, I've been fooled when I think in reality there, if we can see the whole person, um, that can make things a little bit easier. It's not easy, but it can make things a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. No. And like I said, I'm usually... I think I've been blessed at being able to forgive quite quickly. I'm not good at lots of things, but one thing I'm fairly good at is, I think, being able to forgive. And I think a part of that is, is that I've usually been able to see with anybody, um, I can try and focus on the good qualities and separate the mistake from the person, which has always been helpful to me. Um... So I'm just going to share this last quote here that from the textbook that I liked. Genuine forgiveness is a process, not a product. It is hard work and it takes time. It is a voluntary act that gives meaning to the wounded and frees the injured person from the ills of bitterness and resentment. So again, that kind of just covers kind of all that we talked about. It's a process. Sometimes it takes time, um, but it is something that we have to choose to act on. It's not something that will just happen one day. Um, and then at the end, 
that saves us from bitterness and resentment. Anyway, any last thoughts? No, thanks for inviting me on the podcast again. It's fun to be on it with you. Well, and thanks for being my extra special co-host. Um, and thanks everybody for listening. I only have a couple more to do and hopefully, hopefully you will enjoy this one in the next couples and we'll see you next time. Thanks.